So back when I was in college, there was a professor that Cameron had and probably Sarah had and your husband Jonathan and Ellie had and Camille had and people who went to Andrews University. And he, year after year after year, was nominated for the Teacher of the Year Award. Just year after year after year. And many of those years, he won the award. And he, you know, everybody loved him. His name was Dr., still is, Dr. Lael Caesar, right? You know what I'm talking about? Judy knows him. Yeah. And uh, everybody loved Dr. Caesar. I love Dr. Caesar. Everybody. Nobody met Dr. Caesar that didn't love, that nobody met him that didn't love him. And uh, the funny thing is, here's the funny thing is, is that he, even though he was nominated year after year and he was, he was selected a number of times as the teacher of the year, he actually wasn't that good a teacher. <laughs> you would sit in his classes. Am I right? I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just... You would sit in his classes and you'd come out of them and you'd be like, what in the world did he just say? He was, he's a brilliant man, brilliant mind. He has a PhD from the University of Wisconsin in Old Testament studies. Just a brilliant man. Actually, I took Hebrew with Jonathan, uh, Sarah's husband. And he wasn't even a theology major, and Jonathan took Hebrew. But he was just a brilliant mind, and yet his teaching was just confusing, and you didn't know what he was talking about. But year after year after year, he would get nominated for Teacher of the Year Award. Did he kind of stuff the ballot box, so to speak? No. What would happen is, as an example, you would go into the cafeteria at the school, and you would look and you'd walk in at lunchtime, and where do you think you'd find Dr. Caesar? He was sitting right in the middle of a crowd of students, and he was holding court, and he was laughing, and he was telling jokes, and he, w- he would call people his son or his daughter. To this day, he calls me one of his sons because he loved the students. He loved those students. Sometimes there would be students of his who would be in classes, like moms who had little children, and it was a, a faux pas. It was out of bounds to have those students have their children in class, and he would say, I don't care, bring them in. It's awesome. He would love to have those little kids in his class because he would do anything for you. He was actually my academic advisor, and there was many, many days where I would make my way to his office, and I would go, and I would sit down, and I'd just vent to him. Usually it was about some failed romantic venture that I was on, and he would just, you know, commiserate with me. There was one time where uh, I had a championship floor hockey game, and uh, I told him about it, and I said, oh, Dr. Caesar, I have this game at such and such a time. Man, it would be awesome if you could come. He said, well, I have to administer a final exam then. So I thought nothing of it, and I went and I was playing and you know, running around the gym and playing floor hockey, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I heard this big, booming voice, Go, Sean! I look up, and there's Dr. Caesar. He was at the game. And so after the game, I went up to him. I said, Dr. Caesar, I thought you said you had a final exam you had to administer. And he said, well, what I did is I came, I brought the exam, I gave it to the students, and then I left so I could come watch your game. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was known as somebody who would eat with sinners. 
He would eat with sinners. You go into the cafeteria and you don't see those faculty eating with students. They're off at their own little table. They're eating with themselves. But he was incarnational. He would get in the flesh and be with us as students, us unworthy, poor, wretched students. Oh, he could sing, but you see, he couldn't sing when I knew him because his voice, he had some issues with his voice. Yeah. So I never heard him sing. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful voice. He was from the Caribbean. That's how them. Judy went to school, and there you go. Well, you know what? We're going to continue here the series that we have started a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago or so, called Blessed Are the Poor. And today we're going to look at a teaching that absolutely rocked my world when I came across it in Scripture. There are sometimes you're reading through the Bible and you're like, whoa, is that actually in there? I came across this passage and I never had noticed it before. But as I was preparing for this whole topic, I looked up the word poor in, in the Bible and I went through all of the different data, the, the verses that spoke of it, and I came across this verse in Luke And I said, man, how did I never notice this verse before, this passage before? It is a powerful idea. We're going to get there in a second, but we're going to be looking, if you have your Bibles and you want to look at them yourself, we're going to be looking in Luke chapters 13 and Luke chapter 14. Just by way of review, we started talking about in this series, this teaching series about how God is calling us to recognize and acknowledge and minister to the poor. This is a major theme in scripture. We talked about how in Bangor, for example, there's 22% of the population of Bangor is living in poverty, 25% in our neighboring town, Old Town. And so God is calling us to be a, a group of disciples who live out the gospel towards those who are living in poor, in poor and impoverished. So, and then last time we were together, if you don't remember, a couple weeks ago now, it seems like it's been ages, but we looked about how Paul said that you remember, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, yet though he was poor, yet, for our, yet though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And that provides the whole motivation, the whole impetus for us living out this reality of the gospel is that as we allow Jesus' love and his, his, his sacrifice to penetrate our hearts, we live out the reality of that gospel as well. And so we always need to keep that in mind is that this, this, this boundless love that Jesus emptied out all of heaven for us so that he could rescue us and save us. And so this morning, we're going to look, we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 13 and we're going to start in verse 22, okay? Luke chapter 13, verse 22. A little context to the verse that we're building up to. I will try not to linger very long here, but Luke chapter 13, verse 22, in the New Living Translation, the, the writer Luke records these, these words. Now, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? Now, in many translations, for whatever reason, they put this in the future tense. 
And there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of Christian theology that is built around some future reality of salvation. That at the end of the age, at, when Jesus comes back, then we'll be able to be saved and go up to heaven and, and we'll be there to live forever with God. But in the original language and in actually the New King James Version, it's actually in the present tense. The question is, Lord, are there only a few who are saved? So salvation is a present reality. It can be a present reality. But also we need to understand is that salvation is not simply this this legal thing that goes on when we give our hearts to Jesus. Many of us have made salvation into that. That salvation is what happens when I make this transaction with God. That I accept Jesus as my Savior and then, yay, my name has a check mark next to it. But the idea of salvation scripturally is much more robust than that, much more holistic than that. It involves the complete regeneration of a person, the the, the complete redemption of our lives, not just legally, but our lives morally, our lives as far as emotionally and psychologically. In fact, the word salvation in, in in some verses in the book of Luke, for example, is in reference to when people are healed. They, they are sick and Jesus comes and he heals them and it actually the term that is used is they have been saved, they have been healed, they have been made whole. And so what God is interested in doing is not simply putting a check mark next to our name and saying, okay, when you die and the resurrection comes up, you'll be able to go to heaven. Certainly God wants that to be a part of the salvation process, but he wants to bring about a total transformation of our lives. He wants us to live a saved life. Jesus is not simply interested in our future life. He is interested in our present life. And he's trying to restore his image in us. He is trying to make us fully his sons and daughters who reflect his image. And so this question is not simply, again, God, is there only a few people who have their names check, you know, a check mark next to their name? Notice what Jesus goes on to say, by the way. In response, he said, he replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I I don't like this this response from Jesus. I want it to be really easy, and all I have to do is is make a decision in my heart and say, okay, I believe in you, and good, I'm saved, whoop, good. But Jesus, he, he, he puts a little effort into this process. And he says, you've got to work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but will fail. When the master of the house has not locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you. Jesus, we had a relationship with you. We hung out with you. That's what we talk about a lot, having a personal relationship with Jesus. And don't get me wrong, that's, that's, that's very, very important. But Jesus says it's more than simply having a personal relationship with, with me. He says, but we ate and drank with you and, taught, and you taught in our streets. And he will, tell, he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do what? All you who do evil, all you workers of iniquity. All you workers of sin. So Jesus is wanting us to recognize that it's more than simply having a quote-unquote relationship with him. We ate with you. We drank with you. We hung out with you. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's about living a life 
of other-centered love. It's about practicing and living out my law of love. It's allowing my character to mold your character so that you live a life of interrelational integrity. That's what God wants us to be about. So then it says, he goes on to say, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. Strong words, right? Some people say, oh, I just like, the, I just like Jesus. Just give me Jesus. I tell you, Jesus comes at a cost, right? He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of you will be thrown out, and people will come from all over the world, from east and west, north and south. In other words, these are the Gentiles. These are the non-Jews. He said, Abraham will come, but also those from east and west, north and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this. Check this out. Some who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And some who are the greatest now will be the least important then. Jesus is trying to topple their understanding of who is a part of the kingdom of God. He's saying, you know, the people you think are, have it all figured out and have it all made, they're actually not going to be very high in my kingdom. But those who you, who you perceive to be the outcast, to be the down and outers, those are the ones who are going to be greatest in my kingdom. Now check out what happens. Skip ahead to chapter 14, jumping now ahead to chapter 14, starting in verse 1. We just get this context. He says, Luke records, Now one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees. Now remember, in the back of our ears, in the back of our minds, we remember that Jesus says, It's not simply those who say, We ate and drank with you, right? It's those who do my will. So Jesus says, that he's there with the Pharisees. Luke says he's there with the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. Now, what goes on to happen is Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and they were scandalized by that. But a few verses later, we jump down to this little interesting bombshell that Jesus shares, and this was the verse that just, I was like, is that in Scripture? I didn't see this before. And he's speaking to this leader of the Pharisees, And he turned to his host. Jesus does. Now, now he's in this home, and he's been shown this hospitality. Jesus is a rock star in in Palestine in those times. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus because he is Mr. Popular. And if you could have him in your home, you had status. Not because everyone agreed with him, but because he was making waves. And so he turns to his host, and instead of saying, hey, thanks for having me over, check out what he says. Check out what he says. They turned to his host and he said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, your brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors. Don't do that, Jesus says. In other words, what he's saying to his host is, listen, I appreciate the hospitality. You've invited me over because it's a status thing for you. He says, notice what he goes on to say, for they'll invite you back. They'll invite you back. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. And that will be your only reward. Instead, check out what Jesus says. Instead, do what? Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not do what? Who could not repay you. I, when I read this, I said, what is that in Scripture? Jesus is saying, listen, when you throw a party, when you have a gathering, don't invite those who have high status. 
Don't invite those who have money. Don't invite your friends and your neighbors. Invite the poor, the lame, those who are outcasts. Why? Because they can't repay you. You see, what Jesus does is he gets at the core of our, of our proclivity to always act in self-interest. That's one of the core challenges that we have, is that we often engage in behavior so that others can respond to us with some sort of validation or some sort of repayment. And Jesus is trying to help us see that life is not about trying to get something in return. It's about emptying ourselves just as he did so, because that's what the kingdom is all about. And he says, so invite those who can do absolutely nothing for you. It's funny because I didn't even think of it, but this last week, we, when we were down in Florida, and this is not a criticism at all of, of my fine host, although Jesus didn't hold back when he was there with the Pharisee. Um, when, when we were on Easter Sunday, my sister and, and her husband, my brother-in-law, they every year go to this Easter extravaganza. And as we were preparing to go, my, um, my brother-in-law said to me, this, this gathering will kind of be like the who's who of young professional Seventh-day Adventists in the area. Because my, my brother-in-law works for what is called Advent Health, and that is a hospital system in, in southern United States. It's one of the biggest hospital systems in the country. And so he's an executive there. And, and so he said, you know what? People covet an invitation to this Easter party. And sure enough, we go, and you know it's like a $2 million home, and there's like all 60 people there. And as I was there, I looked around, and I said, you know, it's kind of funny, because... Everybody here kind of looks like me. Again, I'm not, I'm not being critical of the people. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful people that hosted it. But there were, I didn't see any poor people there. I didn't see any... I, I, besides me, Judy, that's right. <laughs> besides me. I, I didn't see people from the lower socioeconomic stratas of society. Again, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be there. But, you know, it's like... What are we doing when it comes to building up the kingdom of God? What are we doing? Are we reaching out to those who can do nothing for us? And Jesus says this is a, a, a reflection of your discipleship. It kind of goes along with that question of, hey, are there many people who are saved? And Jesus responds by sharing this, among other things, this story. And so check out what Somebody says in response, hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. In other words, the implication is, someone says, is there only going to be a few people saved? And Jesus goes on and says, you've got to work hard to get into the kingdom of God. It's a narrow path. And he tells a story about what God's kingdom is like. And, and, and the person in response says, boy, it's going to be a blessing to be a part of your kingdom, to sit at your table, to eat your food, and to be there in fellowship with you. There's this quote as I was preparing for this by a, a commentator. He says, in welcoming outsiders to the table and eating with them, Jesus demonstrates God's character. There's a reason why repeatedly, and I, I don't know this theme comes up again and again and again in a lot of my preaching and our, our life, shared life as a community, but eating with others, 
sitting at the table with them. There's something profound and, and so invigorating about that. When Jesus sits down at the table, he is demonstrating God's character. Now check this out. Those who follow Jesus do the same. We do the same. They demonstrate they are God's children as they embody this divine grace. And we know they do so when they extend invitations to those incapable of repaying their hospitality, namely the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. That is, those who make their homes on the margins of society, whether on account of disabilities or economic need or some other socio-religious deficit. So you and I, if we're gospel people, if we believe in the gospel of God's love, if we are are subscribers to that, we will embody it as well. We will live out the reality of that. We will embody the truth of that idea. Now I want you to notice something. We're needing to wind down here, but I want you to notice something. Notice that Jesus here, when he invites his listeners to care for the poor, he doesn't say throw money at them and pay for them to go out to eat. He doesn't say have, a, have a, a soup kitchen now and there's nothing wrong with these things. He says invite them to your table. Invite them to your table. Enter into life with them. I first came across this idea uh, a couple of years ago when I was reading this book, A Meal with Jesus, that just profoundly affected my understanding of what it means to be a disciple who is living on mission. It's a book called A Meal with Jesus, and I want you to, to, just to probe your thinking a little bit here. It's a little long, and, but I hope you'll stick with me, okay? You read, read it with me? Notice what it says. This is by a book by the name, man by the name of Tim Chester. We're called to follow Christ into a broken world. He says, simply writing a check does what? Keeps the poor at a distance. There's a lot of people, and this is what separates to some degree, I would say, liberal progressive policy to what it means to be a, a kingdom person in God's reign, is that we don't simply write a check and outsource our charity. We enter into life with people. Check out what he goes on to say. But Jesus was the friend of sinners. To invite someone for a meal in Jesus' time was an expression of identification. That's why Jesus' habit of eating with tax collectors and sinners was so scandalous. He was saying, these are my sort of people. Check out what he says. Christian Paul says, Often we maintain significant boundaries when offering help to persons in need. Many churches prepare and serve meals to hungry neighbors, but few church members find it easy to sit and eat with those who need the meal. When people are very different from ourselves, we often find it more comfortable to cook and clean for them than to share in a meal and conversation. We are familiar with roles as helpers, but are less certain about being equals eating together. Many of us struggle with simply being present with people in need. Our helping roles give definition to the relationship, but they also keep it decidedly hierarchical. Interesting. He goes on to say, the author, we think we're enacting grace if we provide for the poor, but we're only halfway there. We've missed the social dynamics. What we communicate is that we're able and you're unable. I can do something for you, but you can do nothing for me. I'm superior to you. We cloak our superiority in compassion, but superiority cloaked in compassion is patronizing. That's a strong word, isn't it? Goes on to say, a woman once told me, I know people do a lot to help me, but what I want is for someone to be my friend. People don't want to be projects. The poor need a welcome to replace their marginalization, inclusion to replace their exclusion, a place where they matter to a place where they're powerlessness. 
They need community. They need the Christian community. So here's my challenge for us this morning, okay? Here's my challenge. I know you already have a lot on your plate, but how many of you eat? Full stop. How many of you eat? (laughs) Boy, y'all are fasting, huh? How many of you eat? All right, praise the Lord. How many of you are going to eat each day no matter what? Some of you might fast. You might fast. So what if when you eat, you invite a poor person to sit at your table? You don't have to do anything extra. Maybe just throw in a little half half extra pound of pasta or whatever. That's what I'm going to invite us to do. To find somebody who can't repay you. To find somebody who is poor and impoverished. And, and our, our community is going to be transformed not simply by throwing money at people, but by inviting them into our lives. If we're going to put a dent into the poverty rate of Bangor and Old Town and all these places, it's going to take more than simply charity. It's going to take inviting people into our lives. So this is my very real challenge for you. It's a challenge for me. I want to invite you, and this is your homework assignment. If, when you come here, it's almost like when you walk through those doors, you sign a waiver where you say, I recognize that I'm going to be challenged by the pastor. All right? And, I, and you, you give me permission to do that. You know, when you go to a theme park like we were this week, we went to SeaWorld, you basically sign your rights away and say, if I get killed, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not going to hold you responsible. So when you walk through this door, you're, you, you acknowledge that you are giving me permission to challenge you and to give you homework. All right? So this is your homework. I'm going to give you one month to do it. All right? This is not just all flowery. Yeah, that's a nice idea. Good. We need to be nice to the poor. This is tangible acts of entering into life. And so this is your assignment, right? You guys, when you're in school, you take out pen and paper and you write down your assignment. I don't see anyone doing that. All right, this is your assignment. You have one month to do it. And this is, you know, it sounds like a project, but this is just to get us into the rhythm of of entering into life with people. I want you to have and invite just at least one person who is poor to eat at your table, to share a meal with them. Okay? They say, well, how do I know if they're poor? Well, you'll know. You'll know. You say, I don't know any poor people. Well, you got a month to, to meet a poor person, right? So that's our, it's very, very simple. It sounds like uh, kind of like some humanitarian, secular humanitarian, but, but this, is, this is what it means to be gospel people. This is what it means to be... Jesus said it plainly. When you have a party, don't invite the rich people that can do something nice for you. Invite the poor people. That's in Scripture. It was there. You read it with me, right? Like I said, when I saw it, I was like, boy, boy, is this really here? But God says we're called to be those who live lives of, of open selflessness. Not so that we can get something in return. Not so that people can say, wow, what a great thing you did. Yay for you. And again, we're not doing it so that we can boast and say, hey, I was really nice and I invited a poor person to my house. You know what would be really awesome too is if, if they someday invited you to their house and you went and ate at their house. That's as much a blessing to them as you having them to your house because now you're not superior to them. Now you're mutually growing in grace together.